This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the people of Haiti have not been allowed to govern themselves since the United States overthrew their elected president 15 years ago. We'll get an update on the Haitian people's struggle to take back control of their island nation. And not since the McCarthy era has the threat of censorship loomed so large in the United States. The Democrats seem intent on making it impossible to even discuss ending the rule of the rich. But first, the last time Joe Biden was part of the administration in power, the U.S. got involved in seven new wars. Black Agenda Report contributing editor Danny Haifong has some predictions on how long it will take President Biden to start his own armed conflict. What I see Biden's administration employing is a a shift back to the humanitarian interventionism model of U.S. imperial warfare, which we saw under the Obama administration. And we can already see this with uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, when he was um, giving um, his sort of uh, anointing uh, question and answer session to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he was uh, very forthright in agreeing with much of the Trump administration's existing policies, whether it was acknowledging Juan Guaido, the U.S.'s uh, coup, puppet stooge in Venezuela, continuing the sanctions there and putting pressure on uh, Venezuela's government, um, or whether it was China, which uh, Joe, Biden's, Joe Biden's rhetoric since the beginning has not been encouraging uh, on uh, whether relations with China would ease from the new Cold War hysteria, which we saw under Trump. Tony Blinken was in complete agreement with um, uh, the Trump administration's uh, new Cold War policies there. So uh, there really isn't much, I think, that we're going to see in terms of a, of a, of a shift in U.S. foreign policy more in the sense that the form will change slightly. Now, Joe Biden is certainly no diplomat, and his administration is filled with a combination of both diplomats, uh, war hawks, and I think what we're going to see is a form of humanitarian interventionism, which will be, in fact, more even more hawkish than uh, under Obama, because Right now, the United States is in, in, a, in a real terminal kind of crisis, much worse than even when Obama came to the helm and the economic crisis was ravaging the United States at that time. Now we have a pandemic. We have an economic crisis around the world that's hitting the United States hardest, and the United States is losing significant ground. So uh, economically, militarily, and Trump certainly did not help this with his inconsistent foreign policy uh, orientation throughout his administration. So there's a lot of catching up to do for U.S. imperialism, and I think we all have to be on guard about what form that's going to take, because I don't think it's going to be a peaceful form. The Trump administration, by some measures, actually reduced the U.S. military presence in Africa. But 
we haven't heard anything from the incoming Biden administration about an African policy. But then, major news media don't even ask questions about Africa. No, and Africa doesn't exist to the corporate media. And for Joe Biden's administration, what will likely happen is that there will be this reorientation around fighting terrorism, quote-unquote, and that was an excuse to expand AFRICOM during the Obama administration's uh, two terms. So uh, I, I don't think we're going to hear much about the African continent, despite the fact that there are many points of contention and struggles going on on the African continent, whether it's in Uganda or it's in the Horn of Africa, which holds a lot of weight for the United States and its interests there. And, and we know that China's influence in Africa is only going to grow because China's economy is growing right now and the United States' economy is in a, a period of stagnation, if not uh, a complete deficit uh, when it comes to its ability to uh, really expand and offer anything to nations around the world, Africa or elsewhere. So uh, I, I think that what we're going to see in terms of uh, Joe Biden's administration uh, and its re relations with Africa is we will see more of the same as we saw under Obama. And I think we're going to see more of an emphasis, as we are seeing already, on this representationalist kind of politics, which we see Lloyd Austin and others in the administration representing sort of uh, black faces in these militarist places. I think we're, we're going to see an emphasis on paying attention to that and how meaningful that is rather than what the administration is actually doing, which will inevitably involve more proxy wars, more drones, more um, escalations on the continent in the name of a so-called war on terror um, and in the name of so-called stability and peace on the continent. The events of January 6 may have ushered in a new era that some people are calling a domestic 9-11. There are escalating calls for censorship. The former president was censored himself by private social media. And it seems that lots of the Democratic base wants to extend that censorship, what's being called deplatforming, throughout the U.S. political conversation. Yes, it's, it's a very disturbing trend because we know what happened during 9-11 and afterwards with the war on terror. We saw the rollout of a massive surveillance apparatus which still exists today and still uh, really disproportionately affects activists or organizers, journalists on the left. And the same went with Russiagate uh, over the last four years. Russiagate was used as an excuse to suppress the left organizers, journalists, activists as well. And now, uh, you know, as you've commented and others have commented, it is highly likely that this so-called domestic terror threat, uh, which uh, they're claiming is white supremacy, interestingly enough, white supremacy has been around in the United States since its inception and um, has never been called a domestic terror threat when it affects black people, indigenous people, and those who have really felt the brunt of, of white supremacy and, and its violence. But uh, now that white supremacy has turned inward on the very state that built it, it is inevitably going to be used as an excuse to expand the surveillance apparatus. And we know that white supremacists are not going to be the primary target because they never have been, and they never will be as long as the United States uh, takes the form that it does politically and economically. So. 
Um, it, is, it is very disturbing, but it is also a very easy public relations move uh, when it comes to someone like Joe Biden and his administration and the people behind him and the corporate media and the like, because they can then use white supremacy as a foil to uh, really justify anything that they do, whether it's increasing censorship or whether it is increasing the pain from austerity um, and war abroad and at home. And I think that uh, is something definitely to watch for because January 6th, while it was a byproduct of this long history of the United States has of uh, sort of a white settler uh, colonialism, we also know that uh, the United States itself is a settler society, a settler colonial society, and I mean, it has no interest in censoring itself. It will be using the mechanisms of censorship, warfare, austerity towards those who uh, ultimately are the real targets of all of this, and uh, January 6th is now going to be used as a foil, and we're not going to get the good answers, just like 9-11. We won't get the answers that we need to move forward to really understand this thing as, as a movement. So, so we're going to have to do a lot of that work ourselves. There are many reasons to vote against Donald Trump, but some believe that what really did him in was COVID-19. President Biden, however, doesn't have a plan that would revamp the national health system that has failed so miserably in this pandemic. Yes, and Donald Trump really lost the election because of the political games that he and his administration ended up playing and the GOP ended up playing with the stimulus relief for uh, the majority of the population in the United States. Uh, there was only one stimulus plan that was really put into place during his administration in March, which was really just a bonanza for big corporations and banks. But uh, when it came down to it, uh, those the several months afterward, I think it was somewhere upward of eight months afterward, Donald Trump spent the last two months of his administration uh, basically playing political games with the Democrats who engaged in the games as well, but uh, were lucky not to be in the Oval Office at this time. Uh, to uh, take too much of a hit from it, although they did take a hit in the House because of the games that the two parties Wapoli was playing with the stimulus. And so uh, now we're in a situation where Joe Biden has made a lot of promises um, that were very mealy-mouthed and narrow in scope, a $2,000 stimulus check and a real vaccine rollout. And, and as the days go by that Joe Biden enters the White House, we see that he his administration really doesn't, not only doesn't have an interest in employing a real public health system and employing a real plan towards containing the pandemic, but also uh, the, there's no capacity to do so. And we're finding that out pretty quick with how slow the vaccine is rolling out and the fact that uh, all of the demands that people have been making on uh, Washington, D.C., uh, since the pandemic started, or at least all the desires that they had, they're all being decreased in scope in terms of what uh, Washington, D.C. is willing to offer. For example, the $2,000 checks are now possibly $1,400 one time, and maybe people will see that in March, maybe they'll see that in April, or maybe they won't see it at all. And I think that this is what we can expect from Joe Biden. We can expect an austerity presidency that will do anything to uh, manipulate its way into making that austerity palatable for people as they try to survive what has been an extremely deadly pandemic in the United States.
Speaking of popular demand, back in June, we saw the biggest demonstrations in the history of the United States, with 20 million or more people marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter. But the demands they raised did not resonate with the incoming Biden administration at all. No, and actually Joe Biden's administration is fully committed to not just rejecting the demands for defunding the police, but actually doing the opposite in funding the police in order to for so-called better training and, and all of this when we know that what ends up happening and what has happened over the course of the last several decades alone is that really what flows to the, mili uh, flows to the police is military weaponry and what flows to the police uh, is not more money for so-called training, uh, but more money for training that actually harms people, actually harms especially black people, uh, whether it's uh, the NYPD being trained in Israel or uh, police departments uh, getting trained in domestic terror um, operations, which inevitably are tested out on the poorest and the blackest of those in the United States. So. Uh, really, uh, Joe, Joe Biden's administration is the antithesis of what Black Lives Matter is about. And the way that they try to cloak this is by claiming that uh, through both word and representation in the nomination of people like Susan Rice and the nomination of people like Lloyd Austin, that this represents forward progress, at least symbolically. And that's, that's what people have to look forward to, especially black people, is more symbolism, more of this um, representationalism, which we saw so heavily during the Obama period. The Progressive Caucus is the biggest caucus on Capitol Hill in the U.S. House of Representatives. But on foreign policy, in terms of opposition to U.S. regime change policies, there seems to be no caucus in opposition. No, everyone walks in lockstep unity on this. Even the so-called squad, the most progressive in the progressive caucus, whether it's AOC or Elon Omar, they are wildly inconsistent on the issue of foreign policy. And oftentimes, uh, whatever opposition they have to bloated U.S. military budgets and the like does not really lead to any massive opposition, no organization of their millions of supporters to oppose endless war. And in fact, you can ha you have Alexander Ocasio-Cortez uh, signing on to legislation, which uh, the Trump administration pushed through on Christmas Eve to uh, basically uh, uh, make it okay for the U.S. to try to ex extract concessions from China by offering a consulate, a U.S. consulate in Tibet which is a blatant violation of China's sovereignty. And she wrote a letter praising the Dalai Lama and the Free Tibet Movement, which we know has links to the Central Intelligence Agency, or whether it's Ilan Omar and her constant um, criticisms of the Syrian government as it's been uh, battling for more than 10 years now, U.S. proxy jihadists funded by U.S. allies across the region, and which literally led to one of the most catastrophic refugee crises in human history. So uh, we know that uh, regime change wars, the United States' preferred method, if it can pull it off, 
um, of waging warfare around the world is, is something that has very little opposition inside of Washington, D.C. Um, most, if not all, U.S. politicians, whatever their stripe, whatever political party they belong to, they uh, in, in large part agree with this policy and see it as a, a key part of their electoral agenda. There's lots of speculation about whether Biden will attempt to resuscitate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the so-called free trade agreement. But that train may have already left the station because China has concluded comprehensive trade agreements with its Asian neighbors. Yes, and the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what is so interesting about this is that there are some people on the left who have somehow made this strange link between Wall Street and China as if there's some sort of equivalency there, and they point to these trade agreements as an example of this, but uh, forget that the Trans-Pacific Partnership was actually created to exclude China from U.S. trade with uh, many of its own allies as well as uh, shared allies with the United States. And so there are mumblings that Joe Biden will try to reorient the U.S. capitalist economy toward a more free trade uh, path. But the world has kind of marched forward after four years of Donald Trump. And uh, there, there really isn't much political space, at least. Uh, there is economic incentive always, but the political space for the United States to reopen the TPP is very small. It's not a popular agreement, which is why Trump was able to easily reject it in his, in, in his first days in office. And uh, it has very little, there's very little domestic appetite for it. And internationally, uh, the United States right now looks like a pariah in the world and has very little to offer as Joe Biden hasn't made any indication that he's going to, let's say, reduce the tech war that it is waging against China, for example, which most nations around the world, especially the poorer nations, which have gone through centuries of colonialism and neocolonialism, see as an existential threat to their very survival. Because without access to certain kinds of technology, development itself, the ability to manage an economy, regardless of its form, is, is basically impossible. Yes, in Africa, the biggest share of cell phones are now Chinese. Exactly, and, and Huawei is one of the biggest providers. It provides 4G technology to many African countries with 5G likely on the way in the, in the coming years. And the United States doesn't want to build that. The United States has such costly infrastructure that U.S. private companies don't really want to pay for it. And they're not paying for it in the United States. 5G base stations are basically non-existent here. Uh, Even in the biggest city like New York City, you have to live in very wealthy areas of the city to even get 5G connections. So uh, there's obviously not an appetite among the corporate and capitalist elite to expand this around the world uh, because it is a utility in many ways, this kind of infrastructure. And, And China has a different orientation where it sees utilities, public utilities, and and massive infrastructure projects as a spark for further economic development, which is correct in many ways. But um, in effect, uh, the United States, uh, because it's run by finance capital, finance capital is is shuddering at the idea of these kind of investments because of the so-called risks to it, the risks that you will have to put up profits in order to gain more profits. Now, the U.S. is in this hoarding mode where only financial investors 
can hoard its profits in order to protect whatever ill-gotten gains that it has plundered from uh, working people. Uh, that That is a situation economically that we face in the United States. And with, with the U.S. being the imperial hegemon around the world, that does not spell uh, very positive prospects for uh, the struggle of poor people anywhere. And so uh, we have to really take focus on this reality as we move into the Biden administration, because Biden is not the uh, humanitarian that I think a lot of so-called liberals think that he is. He is really a war hawk, and he's been Wall Street's guy since he began his political career more almost 50 years ago. That was Danny Haifong, contributing editor at Black Agenda Report and co-host of the podcast, The Left Lens. Haitians continue to mount street protests, demanding the resignation of President Jovenel Moyes, accusing the U.S.-backed politician of massive corruption and brutality. We spoke with Daoud Andre, the Brooklyn, New York-based organizer of the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti. What I can say is that the people of Haiti outside and inside continue to struggle this 2021 year. Right now, the current protests in the streets are aimed at forcing Jovenel Moïse out of power by February 7th, 2021. Now, according to Jovenel Moïse and his handlers, his backers, the United States, the core group, they're saying that elections are to happen this year. And him and his cronies, he's coming with a new constitution. (laughs) And he's given a calendar for a referendum for the constitution. And later to have elections for both the legislature and the presidency. The reality is for more than a year now, we can say there is no parliament in the country. Jovenel Moïse has been ruling by decree, and this is supported by the United States and the core group that, of course, he's doing their bidding. The people in the streets are saying that they are not going to elections or in constitutional referendum with Jovenel Moïse. So the call is for his ouster by whatever means necessary. I should tell you that organization that I belong to, Komokoda Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti, our position is that Jovenel Moïse never had a mandate to be the president of Haiti. You'd remember that the election, fraudulent elections that happened in 2016, it said that he got about 500,000 votes. And this is in a country of about 12 million people. So our position has been that this is an illegitimate power. So People are in the streets asking for February 7th, but Komokoda, even before he came to power, we've been saying this is a puppet of the United States who's coming to do the bidding of what they are calling the international community, 
that has nothing to do with the well-being of the Haitian people, with a looking out for the interests of Haiti. And so we've protested against him from before he came to power. So this is our position. But what's the magic about February 7th? Why must he go by then? Well, the thing is, in the Constitution, February 7th is the date that the president takes power, and it's the date that the president relinquishes power, five years after the year of the election. This is Article 134.2 in the Constitution that's supposed to be in vigor right now. That's what it says. And it's the same rule, the same article that Jovenel Moïse used to remove the parliament last year because their election had happened in the year 2015. Now his election happened in 2016, but he's saying that his, the mandate of the president is five years. And so he must be in power until to give up power in 2022 because he took power on February 7th, 2017. But the constitution that is supposed to be in vigor, we, on our side, we don't believe there is any rule of law, any constitution in vigor in Haiti right now. But by that rule, it says specifically the year of the election. And since the election happened in 2016, he is due to give up power in a couple of weeks, 2021, February 7th, 2021. But the United States has already said that, and of course, they're the ones calling the shots, that this is the election year, and they expect him to relinquish power 2022, February 7th, 2022. So the real fight that's going on, Glenn, is between what the United States wants to impose on the Haitian people and what the Haitian people themselves they are fighting for. Now, with this election that happened in the United States, there are some Haitians who are misguided, of course, who believe that Joe Biden has some kind of interest in the well-being, in rule of law in Haiti. We call them Haitians with a very short memory, because for them, it's like Jovenel Moïse had a particular kind of relationship with Donald Trump. These Haitians forget that the election of Martelly, who, who handpicked Jovenel Moïse, Martelly was put in power by the Democrats. This is the Clintons, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden as president. Jovenel Moïse was elected with Joe Biden as vice president, Barack Obama as president. And so we're saying to these Haitians, you know, you might have forgotten, but Joe Biden was in power when Jovenel Moïse was imposed illegally, illegitimately, on the Haitian people. So for us, the battle is in the streets, and the people should be clear that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we are to expect from the incoming Biden administration regarding the reality in Haiti. 
I'm not aware of Joe Biden having said anything on the campaign trail about Haiti, nor has he said anything since his election. But of course, the corporate media never ask him questions about Haiti. The only thing that we saw with regard to that when he was in Miami, and you might have missed it, but he took a knee in little Haiti (laughs) for George Floyd, of course. He took a knee in the Haitian community in little Haiti because the goal was, his thing was that the Haitians have to be ground zero in toppling Haitian Americans, that is, in toppling Donald Trump, because supposedly Donald Trump called Haiti the whole country. And he told them how poetic it would be if Haitians were the one who turned Florida around. Of course, you know, that did not happen. But when he was in Florida, the only thing he said was that he supported the electoral process in Haiti, meaning that his position was the same as that of the Trump administration and Mike Pompeo. Just as we see right now, it's the same position with regard to Venezuela. I saw that after he was inaugurated, he claimed that his administration, the Secretary of State, who was his chief of staff, that they recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela and nothing is going to change about the capital of Israel being Jerusalem. And so I think that the Haitians who thought, or anyone else who thought that Joe Biden is going to have a different administration than Donald Trump, they are sadly mistaken. It's the same process. There is a difference in style, you know. <laughs> but we're talking about the U.S. imperialism. We're talking about America number one. We're talking about the United States imposing its will, its interest on the rest of the world. The United Nations does not have much credibility or legitimacy among the Haitian masses, having been an occupying power and an enabler of these series of dictatorships. But the UN does have a report on Haiti. Well, whatever the report says, Glenn, the UN follows the lead of the United States with regard to Haiti. When the United States led a coup against President Aristide, second time they did it in 2004, the UN served as a proxy to occupy, militarily occupy the country on behalf of the United States. What was clearly stated was that be more cost effective to have non-U.S. soldiers do that kind of dirty work for the United States because American soldiers cost a whole lot more than Brazilian soldiers or Chilean soldiers or soldiers from Sri Lanka. So it's the same reality right now. Whatever the representative of the UN in Haiti is an American woman, Helen Lalim, the ambassador is Michel Sissan. They coordinate what they're doing in Haiti. 
and it's like whatever the United States says today, tomorrow you will see it backed up by the UN, and they have a core group, that's what they call it. And this is how these so-called friends of Haiti, they coordinate their occupation, they coordinate getting their will done in Haiti. And their statements, it's the same. For people who don't know the core group, this is the United States, Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, the European Union. They run Haiti, but the lead country is the United States of America. And United Nations, you can have some UN functionary who will have a statement that might sound good, but at the end of the day, both right now, for example, we were speaking about when does Jovenel Moïse's term end, all three of them, the UN, the core group, and the United States, they are clear. This is February 7th, 2022. And right now there's a rule of gangs, a federation of gangs in Haiti. It's called the G9, group of nine gangs. This is street youth that are funded, armed, heavy weapons by the government, by the United States, because that's how the guns come in. I know, Glenn, you're old enough to remember what happened in Jamaica with Manly and Siaga, you know, at a certain period of the history of Jamaica. This is the same thing that is going on right now in Haiti, a country, by the way, just a few years ago had the least amount of crime in terms of assassinations, weapons in the country. But right now, kidnappings are happening, like a dozen kidnappings a day are going on in the country. And you cannot go from one end of the country to the other without being stopped by this armed group that is fighting against this next armed group and exacting a ransom. This is the reality that the UN, the core group, and the United States, they have there right now. And of course, nothing happens to them. This is like Haitians, Haitians from overseas. And it's like they kidnapping everybody, people with money. They exact 50,000, 300,000 US dollars they're asking for. Or like a small merchant who's selling food in the streets and they're asking 15, 20,000 good to liberate the person. So that's the reality that's going on right now, but it's the reality that allows the U.S. core group, the U.N., to keep their puppet in power and to get whatever they want out of the country of Haiti. The whole world is in the grip of a medical and economic crisis. Haiti's always described as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. How is it faring? <laughs> well, I remember when this started around March, April, I was an interview and there was a report where they were saying it might be 800,000 Haitians that are going to die out of the coronavirus. But nobody is able to understand it. But COVID is barely present in Haiti, Glenn, in this whole past year. 
in the Haitian government, like the Ministry of Health, they have these daily reports. And right now, in the past month, two months, there's been a big spike in the number of confirmed cases. But it's still 10,000 cases. This is people, close to 11,000 people who have tested positive. And they're saying up to now 240 deaths that are attributed to COVID-19. But what we can say is these numbers are jokes, you know, in the sense that the government is not really testing anyone. Like right now, I saw that the U.S. government put a, a notification, the U.S. embassy, that no one will be allowed on a flight to the U.S. if they don't have a negative test three days prior to the flight. But <laughs> I don't know how these tests are going to happen. So we're waiting to see that. But the reality is that COVID has not really affected Haiti, not even in the way that they're saying that it affected the Dominican Republic, because unbelievable Dominican Republic has so much more cases and there's no explanation for the reality that exists now, because it's like, who would imagine? There's no border, really, between Haiti and Dominican Republic. When I say there's no border, of course, there is a border. But, you know, you cross over without checking into... I mean, you can get from Dominican Republic to Haiti without anything, I would say. But Dominican Republic, they're saying 202,000 confirmed cases. And imagine Haiti is 10,000, 20 times less. So we don't understand why. But the people are not dying, even if we understand the government is not testing. But the fact is that we don't see the amount of deaths that I would say that exists in other places. Deaths in Dominican Republic is 2,500, for example. And I told you, like for Haiti, they're saying right now it's 240 people. So we don't know what is the reason for that. And I've seen a few articles like the scientists are doing like all kinds of experiments in Haiti to find out why there are so few cases of COVID in Haiti. But we don't know. As soon as I know, I'll let you know. And what can we expect on the streets of Haiti between now and February 7th? Well, for us, as I said, Komokoda, we are not demanding that he leaves before. He should have never been there. So we are demanding, we are fighting to get rid of him today. But yeah, there are a lot of protests in the streets of Haiti. There have been protests since the 15th. There is a launch of a new series of protests in Haiti. On the 20th, while Joe Biden was being inaugurated in Washington, there were protests in different parts of Haiti, people who went to protest in front of the U.S. Embassy to send a message to Joe Biden that Jovenel Moise must go. But for us, the reality is Joe Biden he has no interest in Jovenel Moise leaving anytime soon. Because if you have a lackey, that's what happened with Trump. Trump found out when he came in 
that Juvenal Moise was a good lackey, you know, and so he used them for whatever he needed. But Juvenal Moise went so far as to turn his back to Venezuela, who has been, after Cuba, the most stable partner, a supporter for the Haitian people, the Petro-Caribe program, you know, that Hugo Chavez started to support the people of Haiti. And despite that, Jovenel recognized Guaido and the clown. I mean, the last uh, legislative elections that happened in Venezuela, Jovenel Moise had the gall to say that not enough people voted. And so he joined the Lima group and they're saying that they don't recognize the results of that election. And this coming from someone like I said, who they're saying got 500,000 votes in a country of 12 million people to become president. So what can we expect? The people have to be in the streets and the people have to use every means at their disposal to remove Jovenel Moïse from power. The young political organizing group called the Dissenters last week held an online discussion of the prospects for war and political oppression under the new U.S. administration. One of the speakers was Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and a former Green Party vice presidential candidate. Baraka said corporate politicians are anxious to impose a regime of censorship so that Americans won't be able to even discuss how to end the rule of the rich. Basically, this the state uh, using the so-called insurrection at the Capitol and the emergence of this traditional right wing represented by the Trump forces, that the state is using that momentum, that reality, that political reality, in a way to, in fact, do the opposite of what we thought might happen with a Biden victory. And that is to, in fact, create the political space that would allow us to be able to organize and to advance our forces. In fact, what we're seeing from the state is a move to constrain and to constrict political analysis, alternative information, to impose uh, on us an ideological conformity that in fact uh, supports and sustains the neoliberal project. So our desire to uh, jettison this more traditional stereotypical kind of, of fascists represented by the authoritarianism of the cartoonish character of Donald Trump may be setting us up to not recognize uh, even more insidious and perhaps dangerous moves being made by the state to usher in a form of neo-fascism that we inadvertently can support or will support by having our attention diverted away from that threat. And what I mean by that is this, that basically what we recognize and remember that neoliberalism came in on the back of a fascist move in Chile. It is a rightist tendency. It is the terroristic coordination of society on behalf of big capital. It is a system that combines and converges capital, big capital, and the state. And as a consequence of that, it is threatened by any kind of, of upsurge from the people. So what we have to be very careful of 
is not recognizing that as a consequence of this capitalist crisis, and we have to understand that you can't understand neoliberalism and neo-fascism abstracted from capitalism. As a consequence of this capitalist crisis, that the state is moving to address its legitimation crisis by strengthening the national security state. So this space that we thought we might have, I think, is, is, is under threat. And therefore, we have to be absolutely clear about how we move, absolutely clear about our relationship to the state, our understanding of the state, our understanding of the social and class forces that are supporting uh, the neoliberal Democrats. Because what we can find ourselves inadvertently doing is, in fact, giving political cover uh, to this move by neoliberal fascism at this critical moment. So the analysis is something we have to continue to, to grapple with. We have to talk about the kinds and forms of organizations that we have to be in the field uh, to address this critical moment because the objective reality is this. The contradictions of this colonial capitalist order will continue to deepen. The redundancy that African people, the African working class and other people of color, other colonized people in this country face uh, will continue to deepen. The fiscal crisis that this state is facing will result in severe suffering on the parts of millions of people here in this country and globally. So we have to be prepared for this kind of struggle that we have to engage in and we have to continue these kinds of conversations to talk about the kinds of organized resistance we have to engage in. And we have to remind ourselves too, and I close here on this comment, that the key beyond organization, of course, the key is effectively engaging in the struggle over ideas. To understand that the terrain of consciousness is a contested terrain. And that we've got to understand the challenges of the ideological struggle that we are involved in because the state understands that and they are uh, putting in, into place mechanisms to ensure that the only acceptable views and ideals that will be allowed to be disseminated are those ideals that uphold uh, the capitalist state and the settler colonial project. That was Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace. Also on that program was Robin D.G. Kelly, the activist, author, and UCLA professor of history. He elaborated on Ajamu Baraka's analysis. There's some signs that we just all sort of know and need to pay attention to. Tony Blinken's going to be the Secretary of State. First thing he says, that <clears throat> I don't recognize the regime of Nicolas Maduro. I, I recognize um, Juan Guaido. I mean, that's a continuation of Obama. It's a continuation of Trump. It's a continuation of U.S. Um, militarism and imperial power. We're going to witness an escalation of wars, the continuation of U.S. policy in Palestine, where that's just genocide, genocide, and it can't be all laid at Trump's feet. We're going to see escalation of wars with Russia and China as the U.S. is going to increase arms sales, but the difference is they may be a little bit hands-offish toward the Saudis, for example, but they're going to sell as many arms as Trump. They're just not going to make an announcement of it. They're just going to do that work. Um, yes, the Biden-Harris <coughs> folks have rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, called for a moratorium 
on our big feeling and stopping the Keystone XL. This is all great. This is all, I would argue, not just their goodwill and good graces, but a victory of struggle. However, the military will still be used to fight the climate catastrophe-driven wars all over the world. AFRICOM is not going to be dismantled anytime soon. And so we're going to see all that, and that's why you're here. You're here because you're prepared to fight. You're here because you're prepared to put at the forefront um, a struggle against the continuation of U.S. imperialist uh, policy. I mean, you all know about Alvo Haynes. You all know about the, the identity politics that Norda so brilliantly laid out. Is the identity politics that would allow for someone like General Lloyd Austin, first black secretary of state. Hooray! <laughs> the cat who is all in bed with the defense industry and who, once again, is, a, not that it matters, civilian or military, the secretary of defense wages war. But this is someone who is very problematic and very dangerous. Avril Haines, you know, problematic, dangerous, for reasons we could talk about. But just closing, I just want to remind us of one other thing. I'm not the first one to say this, but something that's been on my mind. We have to do a better job of fighting on behalf of the prisoners of war in the United States. The Black Agenda Report had a really great piece by Glenn Ford about this, but it's something that a lot of us have been doing. We've got people like Mumia, Sundiata Koli, Jamil Amin, uh, Lenny Peltier, we got Bronza Bowers, Ed Poindexter, uh, Jaleel Mundakim, and uh, Dr. Mutulu Shakur, both were in prison, both had COVID. Mutulu, contra- you know, not only contracted COVID, but he can't even get compassionate release. This is a man who suffered from bone marrow cancer. We need to know about that because remember, when they went to court, they were making the argument that they were prisoners of war. And so therefore should have the, the support of international law in the United Nations, and that was denied. And part of the reason why they will, that judges hate them is because they made an argument. So we've got to really deal with that because reality winner, prisoner of war. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that we need to do right here that goes beyond just looking abroad in terms of foreign policy. My next question is for Robin. Uh, you touched on it a lot. Um, but we really wanted to kind of take it back, scale it back a little bit. And if you could provide a, a working definition or explanation of neoliberalism, just to ground the conversation, it's definitely a jargon term that is thrown around a lot. And there are some people who may be familiar with it, but don't necessarily know uh, the knit and the grit of it. Thank you. Well, Jamu basically laid out some really critical elements of it. I'll just give you just a basic uh, definition. So it's just, it's the idea that markets, free trade, no regulations, a privatization of everything, of every sphere of social and economic life is the best way to structure society. And it is not, neoliberalism is not, a, it's, it's a particular variant of racial capitalism. It's not something that's different. It is very much, in some ways, it became hegemonic in response to the global slump of the 1970s. And it, again, it's not limited to, to Western Hemisphere, it's global. It's not limited to any allegiance to a party. It's not Democratic or Republican. Neoliberal policies have been consistently pushed since the 1970s in the U.S. Every single regime in the U.S. has promoted neoliberal policies. Um, it's the common sense. Neoliberalism basically, like capitalism has always done, maximizes profits by driving down labor costs, 
and they do this through outsourcing, through exploiting unprotected foreign labor, weakening waging war and trade unions, imposing free trade policies in tandem with austerity. You know, it's eroded or eliminated really, the social wage by dismantling the welfare state in the Keynesian era, eroding government protections for the most vulnerable people. It's revolutionized money, monetary, fiscal, taxes, cutting taxes, which of course reduces the social wage, and financial policies as a means of promoting unregulated free market activity. And, and this is where it's another element of the fascist component of neoliberalism that has continually assaulted all democratic institutions uh, everywhere. The U.S. is not an exception. I mean, if you want a great study of neoliberalism, look at New York in the 1970s and you'll see. Look at Michigan in the last 20 years and you'll see disfranchisement, the assault on political institution, the assault on voting rights, the assault on collective bargaining, all forms of popular power, all what? In the name of individual liberty. So the myth of privatization of everything is like neoliberals are against the state. And that's not true. They're all for the state. They're against regulation, against the social safety net, against protections for vulnerable people. But they want the state to make public lands and resources available for private ownership and investment. They want the state to make transportation and communications infrastructure. They public funds for capital. They want the state to create a strong national security apparatus, covert wars, overt wars, interventions to protect markets, domestic policing and surveillance, prisons, militarized border. And part of the magic of neoliberalism is using public funds to pay for privatized services within the military state. And lastly, they like the state to bail out private industry. So it's public risk for privatization. And so they'll bail out in a second. I mean, if you look at the CARES Act, what do they do? They bailed out oil and gas industry. I mean, they gave some like, you know, three to seven billion dollars to like 10% of the 7,000 companies. And it allows companies basically let workers go while CEOs for Exxon and Chevron got bonuses. Uh, that's just like tip of the iceberg. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.